Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Traditionally, summertime is when cities like Hartford see an uptick in violence. A Hartford current analysis finds over the last 14 years, June is one of the most violent months in the capital city. The neighborhoods that see the most shootings are the North End and Upper Albany. Now, beyond gun violence being mentioned in the news, who are the people living it, responding to it, dealing with the aftermath not just days later, but weeks, even years after a bullet tears through flesh? Director Jeff Teitler tells those stories in his documentary film, The Sweetest Land. Now, over the course of five years, Teitler filmed inside St. Francis Hospital's emergency room, where he saw multiple gunshot victims fighting for their lives. He follows some of those Connecticut residents in the documentary, which premiered earlier this month at the New Haven Documentary Film Festival. But the doc doesn't just focus on survivor stories. It asks questions about whether programs in Hartford to reach at-risk youth and prevent violence are effective. Coming up, we'll hear from some of the people in the film, including one of the trauma surgeons at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, working to save the lives of residents who've been shot. But first, I want to welcome into the studio the director of The Sweetest Land, Jeff Teitler, who's also an associate professor of communication at Central Connecticut State University. Jeff, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I was curious, uh, as someone uh, who's been uh, a filmmaker for some time, when did you decide you wanted to focus on gun violence? So I don't know that that happened on purpose. And I think it it was an evolution. Um, Originally, with this film, I was looking into the selflessness of our culture, um, finding those who will wake up at any hour of the night to help somebody. Um, And I was looking to see if the rhetoric, if the ideals of what we believe in are actually playing out. Um, And in that sense, I came up with a title before I actually filmed. Um, And I didn't know, though, that it was going to be on violence and more specifically violence prevention. Um, And that was an evolution. That was a learning process by which when you start on a road, and if you stay on a road, it reveals what it needs to be. And um, that that issue of violence prevention kept playing itself over and over again. Explain the title of the documentary. So in going back to that theme, I, I, w- I wanted to see where we were most effective, where we are taking on our largest obstacles um, and giving it our best evidence-based methods, uh, methods that work. And in in some ways, um, in many ways, if I look at the hospital system and I look at what went on there, what is the beauty of if you are injured and you find yourself in the trauma room, you are going to have a mass of people surround you. All of those people that surround you are going to be very well trained within what it is that they do. Those tasks are very well defined and it is, it is this dance. And even on the worst of days, 
that dance takes place at all hours, any hours, and it is, it, it, it's a beautiful manifestation of, of what it is that can occur when a system works. Um, the fact that all that time, energy, effort, skill, education can go into one soul, um, and it doesn't matter about that soul's race, their religious beliefs, their political affiliations, uh, the objective is to save that life. That's beautiful. It's beautiful when that happens. Uh, and in many cases, in the other stories that play out within the film, um, that also plays out. A, a reverend um, with a bullhorn, with no resources, um, who will walk up to a family after they lost their loved one. No one's paying him to do that. Um, this is Reverend Henry the Brown. Reverend Henry Brown, yeah. yeah. Um, and when you film over the course of a long term, you you have to see the truth. People can't act in front of you because you're seeing repetitions of things. Um, and in so many cases, in all cases, um, with regard to a family that has lost a loved one, that man is out there. That man has to deal with that family, and he is dealing with that family willingly. Um, what's troubling is if you have somebody who is connected with a family who lost a loved one, um, why aren't more people engaging him? And in the event that in many cases the state will pay for funeral services, um, and yet there's a disconnect from why aren't they giving him paperwork to give to that family? Um, so that th there were sort of these red flags that started to play out and these disconnects that played out. And it wasn't my intent to focus on those negative disconnects, um, but they kept happening. And, and, and that, that ability to, the ability to see that, the ability to talk about that is not necessarily a bad thing. And failure is not necessarily a bad thing because if we can talk about failure, then we can improve it. Then we don't have to be defensive about it. We can say, how do we get better? We're going to be talking more about the themes uh, in your documentary film. Again, The Sweetest Land, uh, Jeff Teitler, uh, director, uh, in studio with me here on Where We Live. But I want to talk about the access that you got uh, in filming, um, some very uh, personal moments. It was difficult to watch uh, this mm -hmm. documentary mm -hmm. because you're in, again, uh, the St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center uh, emergency room. Uh, you're seeing uh, surgeons working to save the lives of shooting victims. How did you get that access? So filming occurred in a staggered way, and it seemed to have a snowball effect. And one of the first milestones was working with the Hartford Police and actually gaining access with the Hartford Police. Um, so when you get the trust of police officers who are under constant scrutiny and you are embedded within the intel division and i think when i first got there um <laughs> they were there were police officers that said you know what don't get me on camera whatever you do i don't want to be any i don't want any part of this uh and by the end of our working together they were they you know they were they were pulling me over you got to see this you got to see that you got to see that um but what that led to was a, a few very key events, and and there was one. When I, this was in the very beginning, when I was filming, and and I'm I'm filming in the north end, and I there was a father and a son, and the son was being questioned, and I'm filming the son being questioned, and I look at the father, and he looks at me, and he says, "Don't film my son." 
And the notion that what I was capturing, I had no business to capture. And the ability to, that that footage might become exploitive or that I was exploiting um, those individuals that I was filming who didn't give me permission at the time to film, um, that, that weighed heavy. And if the intent of this film is to get awards, if the intent of the film is to play at festivals, then I am guilty of exploitation. Um, but the real intent of the film is to open up that mm -hmm. prevention conversation, is mm -hmm. to improve the lives of, of those in need. But surprisingly, uh, a lot of the people that you filmed did agree uh, to have, yeah. again, these very, uh, very personal moments uh, when uh, they may be close uh, to grieving or they literally are in pain uh, uh, in the hospital. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think they agreed? So I didn't think they were going to agree initially. And I, you know, when you were filming somebody's most intimate moments and families and mothers and and, and people huddled together in the most tragic of times. Um, and, and sometimes even lifting the camera was terribly difficult because it, I, I almost felt ashamed. Um, and yet the more I would do it and the more I spent time with people and the more they started to tell their stories, um, the more, for some reason, and I, they felt good about it, they felt good that they could tell their stories. And, and I felt like I spent so many hours with so many victims um, hearing their stories, not only in the event of a trauma, but right after that trauma and days after and while they're healing in the hospital. Um, that, that very close bonds were formed um, and, and that it was unanticipated and, and is sort of the beauty of the film and to really, because it's, I was looking at the Hartford Current, and I, I'm looking at you know Hartford homicides from 2015 to 2019, and you have a big map, and you have dots everywhere. Well, those dots are families. Those dots are mothers, fathers, they're friends. They're not dots, uh, and and w when you you can't stereotype them when you when you're when you're with people, um, and you also see what happens when they are released from the hospital. Uh, one of the uh, people we meet when we watch uh, your film, again, The Sweetest Land, is Aswad Thomas, uh, who is a survivor of a Hartford shooting in 2009. He's joining us today from the studios at WABE in Georgia. Aswad, welcome to our show. Hey, Lucy, how you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Uh, I mentioned that you now live in Georgia, but part of your upbringing uh, was in Hartford. Uh, going back to 2009, you were on your way to a professional uh, basketball career abroad. Uh, what changed outside a convenience store in your old neighborhood? Yeah, um, I'm from Hartford. Um, I was born on Edge Street in the North End, in the Upper Albany neighborhood. And you know, I grew up in a community um, you know, riddled with poverty, riddled with uh, violence. Um, but living in that community, um, I never thought that I would become a victim of violence. And for me, um, at a very young age, uh, basketball and, and my education were the, the two opportunities that I uh, firmly believe would, you know, allow me success in life or, and to accomplish my dreams. And so in, in 2009, um, I graduated from college. I became the first male in my family to ever graduate from college. And that moment was uh, not just uh, important historic for myself, 
uh, for my family, but also for the community um, because I, you know, quote unquote, made it out of the neighborhood. Um, and, and I was a star basketball player, um, you know, a star basketball player from the city of Hartford um, who signed with a basketball agent to continue and, and embark on his professional basketball career overseas, um, where um, August 24th, uh, 2009, uh, it became the lowest point of my life when I uh, became a victim of gun violence. Um, just um, being in the neighborhood, um, leaving out of the corner store, on the street that I grew up on, um, uh, two individuals, two young men uh, approached me uh, with what I believe was an intent to rob me, and after a brief scuffle, um, I got shot twice in my back. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I remember um, waking up um, on that cold concrete, uh, not able to move uh, my legs. Um, I was uh, confused, um, but I didn't know I was shot. Um, I immediately um, tried to stand up, but I couldn't. And then I felt a substance that felt like water was on my back. And you know, as I reached behind my back, um, to feel what this substance was, uh, my hand was was filled with blood, and that's when it hit me that um, those bullets that I escaped my entire life uh, finally uh, caught up to me that night on August twenty fourth, two thousand nine. You would later uh, wake up at uh, St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Uh, your family uh, there with you. You would learn that you suffered two gunshot wounds. Uh, tell us about the injuries, Aswad. Yep, suffered two uh, gunshot wounds to my back. Uh, the first bullet uh, entered uh, right behind my left shoulder uh, and, and tore across my back uh, inches away from my spinal cord. Uh, the second bullet uh, entered directly into my upper back and traveled down to my lower back, uh, once again, inches away from my spinal cord and my aorta. And um, I was in bad shape. I would suffer from uh, two collapsed lungs, um, my shoulder was dislocated, and you know, those seconds that went by, I d- didn't know if I was going to uh, live or die. Um, and when I finally uh, woke up in the hospital with uh, tubes down my throat and listening to the uh, the hospital uh, monitor uh, beep and, and seeing my family inside of this emergency room, um, everybody was crying. And I remember thinking to myself, um, what are they crying about? Because it still didn't hit me that I had actually uh, got shot. Um, and then I remember uh, Dr. William Marshall from St. Francis Hospital uh, came over to my bedside and, and told me that um, that I got shot. I suffered two gunshot wounds. Um, and that's when it, it really hit me. I, I really you know, thought to myself, um, would I ever play basketball again? And then my second thought was, would I ever be able to walk again? And mm-hmm. it was um, the, the the worst time of my life. As what you were able to recover uh, when something like this happens uh, to some individuals, uh, the first thought might be retaliation for uh, ruining the path that you were on. How did you get past that thought? When I was released from the hospital, uh, I was released from the hospital back into the same community where I got shot at. Uh, that's where my mother lived. And so when I was released from the hospital, I was um, in you know immense uh, physical pain, um, emotional pain. Um, nobody told me you know how to deal with the aftermath of, of being a victim and, and surviving gun violence. So I remember those uh, those cold nights of waking up in sweats. 
Um, you know, I was you know in a state of depression. You know, suffering from uh, post traumatic stress disorder, um, with no help um, at all um, during this recovery process. And so I started to get angry. Um, I started to get angry. I you know those young men that shot me that ended my basketball career. I wanted those individuals um, you know to feel the pain that I was feeling, and I had thoughts of retaliation. Um, but but today I know that uh, retaliation is what keeps the cycle of violence going on in communities. And so, you know, as part of my healing journey um, was uh, being part of the sweetest land. Um, it was the uh, only opportunity that I had to talk to someone um, about what I was going through, what my family was going through. And unfortunately, when I was released from the hospital, um, the hospital uh, caseworker or social worker department uh, never followed up with me. Uh, law enforcement came to visit me uh, several times uh, in the hospital and when I was uh, back home. Um, but not one time did they ask me how I was doing. Uh, not one time did they uh, ask me if I needed any um, help with counseling or therapy. Uh, not one time did they uh, tell me that there's a victim's compensation program to help families like myself. Uh, not one time did they uh, care enough about my well-being. And, and, and there I, I started to feel um, alone. I started to feel like I was the only person uh, going through this. But unfortunately, I, I wasn't. Um, in my immediate family, uh, my father was shot uh, in the 1980s uh, in his chest. Um, my second oldest brother um, was shot uh, in his back in, in early 1990s. Uh, my first cousin was shot in the early 2000s. Um, he's now paralyzed uh, from the waist down. And so in my immediate family, uh, five out of the 10 males are victims of gun violence. And unfortunately, uh, none of us received any help or support uh, after uh, those incidents. And so um, I, I wanted to um, find a way to tell my story in the only outlet uh, that was there was the sweetest land. Um, I didn't want to become uh, just another uh, statistic, another young black man in Hartford is shot. Um, I, I wanted people to know what happened to me. I wanted the people to know uh, what I was going through. I wanted people to know that, you know, I was a college graduate. I was a star basketball player. And I've never been in trouble, and my dreams were shattered uh, because of violence. And I wanted to dedicate my life um, to helping other victims of violence get mm -hmm. access to the support and services that they need. Uh, Aswad, today you're Managing Director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. That's a national network uh, that aims to bring crime survivors into policy discussions. Um, again, you're joining us from WABE in Georgia. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Aswad Thomas, uh, one of several stories, uh, people that we meet uh, in the documentary film, The Sweetest Land, uh, directed by Jeff Teitler. He's with me in studio as well. We're going to continue uh, talking about this documentary that looks at the epidemic of gun violence in the country. It's uh, focusing in on stories here in Hartford, Connecticut. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We have to realize 
where we are, where we have a disease. And we have to be able to sit down and honestly deal with it. But who's really watching the hen house, you know? Is it the fox? That's trauma surgeon Dr. Schuster Christie at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center in Hartford. He's one of several doctors featured in the documentary called The Sweetest Land. It's a film that looks at the epidemic of gun violence by focusing in on Hartford during a time when the capital city was dealing with a high number of shootings and gang violence. Uh, The director is in studio with me, uh, Jeffrey Teitler, who's also an associate professor of communication at CCSU. And joining me now in studio is another uh, individual uh, that uh, we see in the documentary. Uh, Dr. David Shapiro, who's a trauma surgeon at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center in Hartford. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, When we see you in the film, uh, you're actually responding uh, to a shooting victim, uh, I believe, uh, Mr. Luis Torres, and uh, you're trying to save his life. What was it like uh, to be doing your work and having Jeff Teitler there filming you? Uh, At first, it was... um Well, it was obtrusive. It was there. He was right in front of you. But after about the first 10 minutes, Jeff found a way of making himself invisible. And when we're focusing on the patient, that's all that matters. And the nursing staff, the physician staff, all the providers that were there just let Jeff blend into the background and he became part of our day. So we were able to focus on the patient like we were supposed to. I asked Jeff earlier about uh, how he got access uh, to these very emotional uh, scenes. Uh, You were also an artist in residence at St. Francis Hospital. Not at the time. This actually began that process um, because of the relationships that that were formed uh, and the stories that that were told. Uh, But that wasn't in play back Mm -hmm. then. And I think it was a year-long negotiation with the hospital uh, and following many, many protocols and a number of trainings to be able to to do that work. Mm-hmm. Well, what, how did they first respond to you? Uh, you said that it was a, a, it took a while to get uh, that authorization. What were they worried about? Patient privacy being one? So I, I, I think that would be a big one. Um, I think patient privacy, uh, you know, you also have to think, what's the get for a hospital um, to allow a filmmaker in on this issue? And it sort of speaks to that hospital's values that they would allow that access to tell these stories. Um, and and again, it was a slow process and it required a lot of persistence, a lot of follow-up. Um, but the more I ended up speaking to individual practitioners and the more we ended up speaking to it and forming relationships, it just began to snowball. And, and, and I remember that first meeting with the trauma team and uh, introducing this idea. And by that time, I had I, I was with the police, and I was filming all of these stories, um, such as you know the 2008 West Indian Day Parade, um, where Richie Medina uh, this is, is a de- police detective. Yes, Detective Richie Medina is um, finds himself with a six-year-old boy with a gunshot to his head, and that was Tyreek Marquez, um, and in there were bullets going and he removes his shirt and puts it around Tyreek and holds Tyreek's head. Um, He takes Tyreek to the ambulance and the ambulances were all jammed up because there were many people injured and shot that day. Uh, And he ended up commandeering the ambulance and taking him to the hospital. So to have that outside access and to not be able to follow through with those stories, um, you know, you want to sort of follow where those stories go and who those people are. Um, 
And I think the more I was gathering those outside stories and then the more we met with the trauma team, um, they became very passionate mm -hmm. about it because they are the ones that are waking up at all hours and are there in any weather, in any condition. Uh, David Shapiro, tell us more about the trauma team that you're part of at St. Francis Hospital. And at that time in 2008, you know, how often were you treating shooting victims? Oh gosh! <clears throat> so tw 2008 was a was a busy time, and probably one of the reasons that Jeff got involved and the police were were getting involved in more and more activity. It was every day we were seeing people with um, gunshot wounds of a variety of severity every day of the week, and it was in the middle of the night. It was during the day. It was in the mornings. It was uh, any time they they would come in. And being a trauma center, we're a level one trauma center in Hartford. We're very uh, proud of that fact, but. We've always been at the ready, and the trauma team means that you have trauma surgeons, you have PAs, you have nurses, you have respiratory therapists, pharmacists, you name it, in the emergency department, in the operating room, everywhere, in the ICU, ready at any moment to take on all the burden of multiple patients coming in. That's a challenge for anyone, and gun violence is a public health phenomenon. We see it in families, as Oswald just described. We see it um, having... Um, it being impacted by prevention programs a little bit, but not enough. We see it impacted by the readiness of any hospital. We can do the right thing in the hospital. What we lack in doing well is the prevention before the shooting and the preventions and subsequent shootings. Uh, in your time as a trauma surgeon, uh, frustrating at times to see uh, this uh, cycle of violence and the repercussions uh, in your hospital? Absolutely. And it becomes almost a burden to focus your energy away from the patient because you want the patient to get better, you take care of them the best way you know how, but we can't blame the victims of violence. We have to blame ourselves, we have to blame our government, we have to blame our legislation, legislative process, that we have to get focused on what can prevent things. And I mean, the Dickey Amendment's been around since 96, we haven't been able to use funding from the government to focus on gun violence, and even now after some recent legislation changed, the CDC can do research, but they can't use allocated funds in the government. Well, it's kind of the same thing. You have to have the money to do the research, and you have to focus on the right way. We wanted to talk more about uh, this uh, issue, this looking at gun violence in America as a public health uh, issue. Uh, joining us uh, now by phone is Linda DeGudis, who's the former director of the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control at the CDC. She's currently an adjunct professor at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Uh, Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, we heard uh, Dr. David Shapiro talking about how uh, gun violence, whether it's happening in Hartford or, or any community uh, in uh, this country, it is a public health issue, but not everyone sees it that way. Uh, so in your time at the CDC, you know, what needed to be done to help change the public's perspective on gun violence in America? I think we needed people to realize how many people die from gun violence and there's 90 people, 90 or more people a day who die from gun violence. About 60% of those are suicide, but there's still people dying in our cities. There's people dying in rural areas. There's children dying who pick up a loaded gun because of curiosity and they unintentionally shoot themselves or someone else. And so there, this is a big issue. 33,000 people a year were dying of a virus or something that was transmitted, um, we, would, we would immediately be putting a lot of money into it and doing something to figure out how to stop it. But 
this has not happened. Um, the politics have interfered with the ability to do anything and to get any funding to both look at what works as well as to really implement programs that will prevent the violence from starting in the first place. And that needs to happen at a very, you know, at a very young age. But also, you know, we need to be giving people opportunities to get their education, to be able to um, support themselves. There's so many, you know, contributions to violence. And I think some of it is that um, we don't, people don't understand the stories. They don't understand um, how this impacts families because maybe it's not impacted their family. They don't understand. They don't have the stories. And I think one of the very important things about this film is that it does tell the story, and it tells the story from a very personal perspective, um, from how it impacts both the person who's been shot and their family, um, how it affects their communities. And I think we've not not heard those stories in quite the right way to help people understand it. Uh, Linda, uh, there is uh, evidence uh, when policymakers, when uh, public health officials come together and they see a public health issue before them, there's ways to solve and, and to keep people alive. Uh, one being how um, you know car safety and the number of people that die in uh, car uh, crashes uh, each and every day. Uh, there's evidence that when uh, different uh, people come together, uh, changes are made to help p- people uh, be safe. Can you tell us how that happened? Sure. Um, yes, with cars, we knew that it wasn't just about the person driving the car, but there were things that could be done to make roads safer, to make the vehicles themselves safer. So if you look at what has been done with vehicles and with some laws like um, child child passenger safety laws, you know, the child restraints that people now use for their infants and young children, Um, that save those lives and help prevent injuries, Um, airbags, designs inside and outside a vehicle um, that are safer both for passengers and pedestrians, Um, crumple zones in vehicles, ways that um, keep the vehicle from creating more injury if it is in a crash. And those are the kinds of interventions that we've developed and we've been able to use to help make motor vehicles safer. We didn't take them off the streets because they were causing death. And I think we have that same thing, you know, with guns. It's that there's a lot of people, the, most gun owners are very responsible. Um, you know, there's people who hunt, there's people who target shoot. Um, but the thing is that we haven't really set it up so that given that there are guns in our environment, that we're keeping people safe and decreasing the risk of being injured or killed with a gun. Uh, this is where we live. Uh, today we're focusing in on a documentary called The Sweetest Land. It looks at gun violence in America by focusing in on stories in the city of Hartford. Uh, on the phone with me, Linda DeGudis, the former director of the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control at the CDC. In studio with me is the director of the film of The Sweetest Land, uh, Jeff Teitler, and Dr. David Shapiro, uh, who's one of the many people featured uh, in this film. He's a trauma surgeon at St. Francis Hospital and Medical 
Medical Center in Hartford. Uh, David, uh, as you hear uh, from uh, Linda, uh, again, you're on the front lines uh, treating people uh, who um, have been shot. Uh, she mentioned how uh, guns have been politicized in this country, uh, mass shootings in recent years bringing attention to uh, gridlock, uh, whether it's in Congress or even uh, in Connecticut, we've seen change, but that doesn't happen in all states. Um, so how um, can uh, medical professionals re- respond to this issue when in some ways uh, there is that uh, hands are tied because there's not federal funding towards that kind of research? Well, that's a, it's a, a multi-answered question. I'll tell you that the most important thing we can do as a as an existing body of people, the medical professionals, is agree to stop disagreeing on what's not important. We're not going to get guns away from people. We're not going to take anyone's Second Amendment rights away. We have to make sure that our focus is on the prevention. And just like Linda said, when it comes to, for instance, car crashes, the best example you can set as a parent is being a good driver. So the best example you can set is being a safe gun owner if you're a gun owner following the rules, taking care of things, not to mention the legislation on background checks and making sure that people are doing the right thing, avoiding loopholes that allow people to obtain guns that they shouldn't be getting, making sure that people who have guns are keeping them safe in their homes, locking them up properly, and using them absolutely properly. When it comes to the firearms that are available to communities, per se communities that are prone to violence or communities that have people in them that want to commit violent acts, We have to better treat those people and those people at risk by early in their lives teaching them how to resolve conflict without violence. And that's something that we can't just start over for people who are in their teens. This has to start out before adolescence when they're very young and they're just understanding how to interact with other people. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about uh, that other theme in uh, this film with Jeff Teitler, and that is looking at prevention programs, helping at-risk youth. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, David, uh, given uh, the political climate, again, surrounding guns, uh, uh, you're fully aware uh, last uh, fall when the NRA tweeted that doctors speaking out about guns and gun violence should, quote, stay in their lane. What's your response? My response is the response of my colleagues. This is our lane. I see it every day. My colleagues at the hospital, my partners, the people that I work alongside with the American College of Surgeons and the Committee on Trauma, all those people believe the same thing. Our job is to prevent these people who have been shot from dying. Our job is to stay in that lane and, number one, keep the people who have been shot from dying and then prevent people who are at risk for being shot from being injured. This is our lane. Uh, Jeff Teitler, I wanted to go back to you uh, again, uh, these uh, very intimate stories of uh, shooting survivors uh, in the documentary, The Sweetest Land. Also, uh, we see uh, family members talking about uh, what happened to their loved ones and uh, how they're helping them in recovery. But you also focus in on community groups in the city of Hartford, uh, again, during this time period. Um, And 2008 to 2013, is that around the time? Maybe a little more. <laughs> and you're looking at, you know, what's being done um, to even prevent the violence from even happening. So um, how did you go about uh, focusing in on certain groups, one of them being uh, Capital Workforce Partners? What did you find? So before I go into any specific group, it was never my intent to criticize a specific group. Um But if we look at the national evidence on violence prevention efforts, there was a very, very large study done in the University of Colorado called the Blueprints Program. Um, And I think this was a CDC-funded study. And it revealed right now, I think the current research is 1,500 
programs have been evaluated based on their ability to reduce violence and then replicate those methods uh, with the same population in different areas. Um, out of those who have been rigorously evaluated, what the evidence shows is only 5% of those programs have evidence of, effect, of efficacy. This doesn't mean that 95% of programs are ineffective. It means they, at the time of submitting their evaluation, that evidence was insufficient. But even if you up that 20% uh, and you have 25% of programs that are doing the job to the best evidence that we have, using protocols as consistently as possible, um, that's 75% of programs that are reaching families, or maybe they're not reaching families because there's also skimming involved. Um, skimming being, are you accepting those truly at risk in your program because their chances of failure are greater? So if you don't accept those truly at risk and maybe semi at risk, not necessarily totally at risk, their chances of success may be much greater. But the funds being raised are for those truly at risk of impending violence. Um, so it, it became a very complicated issue. But when I, in watching how those stories played out at the hospital, uh, in watching at what would happen after they were released, and in watching the response of organizations, that, that, that became a non-ignorable disconnect. Um, and I think that is the difference between, you know, between taking somebody's story and that now there's an action there. And again, in talking about failure, fa it's nobody's intent to run a program that fails. Um, so m perhaps you have an executive director who is in charge of a program who needs to raise funds for that program just to keep that program going. And in many cases, there's a substantial amount of funds that they are raising. Um, but maybe that executive director is also planning things based on what they think will work. But is it really the best evidence? Is it and are they connecting with that CDC research and those protocols and the 5% of things that we know work? Uh, Linda, I wanted to go back to you. Linda DeGudis, former director of the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control at the CDC. Uh, so there's definitely tools of pub that uh, people can lean on uh, that's uh, shown in uh, public health to evaluate what works and what doesn't. Is this something that community organizations should also be putting uh, front and center? Yes, there are tools. And I think, as Jeff has mentioned, the, that's one of the very important things is to look at these things that are working and look at Maybe, you know, sometimes they need to be modified slightly for a different population, um, but that's okay. There's ways of looking at that. But it's also monitoring what's working and what's not working. And I think what we need to really make sure we're doing is we're doing programs that aren't making us feel good, but are actually working for the people who we're working with and who we're trying to um, empower or create you know, some sort of interventions for as opposed to making us feel good because we're spending time doing something. Mm. But there's so many ways to evaluate it, and um, the tools are available. Well, I want to thank Linda DeGudis for joining us today here on Where We Live. Also in studio with me, Dr. David Shapiro, a trauma surgeon at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, uh, one of the people featured in the documentary, The Sweetest Land. Uh, Dr. Shapiro, thank you.
Thank you very much. Uh, This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to continue to talk with film director Jeff Teitler, as well as Aswad Thomas, a survivor of a Hartford shooting. And we're going to be joined by Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin. We're going to find out how the city today decides which prevention programs to fund, what has been shown to effectively combat gun violence. We'll ask Mayor Bronin, and we want to hear from you. Join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Now, criticisms over how dollars are spent in Hartford to reach at-risk youth and prevent violence is not unique to Connecticut's capital city. In 2014, Illinois State Auditor General focused on a $55 million program meant to curb gun violence, or gang violence rather, in Chicago and found it was largely ineffective. Now, we've been talking about prevention efforts today after focusing on the new documentary, The Sweetest Land, which looks at the epidemic of gun violence by telling the stories of Hartford residents who've been shot. One of them is with us from WABE in Georgia, Aswad Thomas. Uh, we wanted to learn more about violence prevention efforts in Hartford. So Mayor Luke Bronin of Hartford is joining us now by phone. Uh, Mayor Bronin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lucy. Good to be with you. Uh, I think the good news is homicide rates are down from years past, but there's still uh, many shootings in the city. Uh, Shot Spotter, which is technology that's used, uh, counted uh, nearly 1,000 shots fired uh, in Hartford in 2018, uh, 140 shooting victims. Uh, when, you, when you look at your city, uh, Mayor Bronin, what more needs to be done to prevent violence? Uh, thanks, Lucy. Uh, first of all, this is a uh, really important conversation. I appreciate the chance to uh, to be with you. I, I, when I first came in, you know, we had a lot of conversations with the folks who were doing the work on the ground. You know, people like Brother Carl Hardrick, uh, uh, people like uh, Dean Jones, uh, and many others, uh, and asked, you know, what what's missing from the set of tools that you have. And one of the things that consistently came up is, you know, we don't have any anything to offer especially the young people that were trying to uh, get on a different path and help uh, find support. And, and because of that, we created something called the Youth Service Corps, uh, which has uh, grown and, uh, you know, over the last few years, given about 750 young people a chance to get their first paid year-round job, but also get to some, some connected to support, mentoring, and counseling that helps them get back on the track to school or to uh, a job. That's been important uh, and a number of the kids who are in that program uh, have been in and involved in or around uh, on the periphery of gun violence. Uh, but we also recognize that that wasn't going to be nearly enough. And one of the other big gaps is strong reentry support. So we created a reentry center uh, right in City Hall, where anybody who's returning to our community from incarceration can get connected to folks who are knowledgeable about navigating the world after incarceration, whether that's getting connected to housing or a job. So that's another piece. Uh, the third thing we were doing when we started was supporting an organization called Compass Peace Builders that does that immediate response and intervention work to try to break the cycle of retaliation uh, in the immediate aftermath. But uh, over the course of a couple of years, you know, what I saw firsthand uh, in really distressing ways, was what Aswad described, that there was not a sustained support system for people who were victims of violence, uh, involved in violence. So, And this really came home to me um, 
uh, about a year ago when an 11-year-old was shot. Uh, in the middle of the night, he was outside at 1 o'clock in the morning. He was shot. And I went to his house uh, the next morning thinking I would uh, talk to his uh, family, expecting that he was likely still in the hospital. Uh, nobody was home. Uh, and as I, I was walking back down the street, I see a little boy walking up the street with his arm in a cast by himself. And it, it was, to me, the most powerful and disturbing demonstration of the lack of supports. Mm. Uh, and so we uh, quickly pulled the team together inside City Hall in my office with uh, many, many partners around the community, everyone from our education partners at CREC and HBS to Catholic Charities and Center for Children's Advocacy to DCF and uh, you know the Court Support Services Division and many, many others. And But what we called our rapid response protocol, which really is about immediately reaching out, identifying both immediate needs and longer-term needs, and then trying to coordinate the the support that can be sustained to those people, especially those under 24. Mm. Mayor uh, Bronin, I mean, these initiatives all sound, um, you know, really positive, but, you know, when people watch The Sweetest Land and look at some of the nonprofits uh, that are there to respond to ask at-risk youth and at-risk communities, uh, you know, one of the big questions is, you know, how do you know that these programs are working? Uh, what uh, evidence-based strategies or data are you looking at to make sure that you're directing the resources in the right way? No, it's, it's, it's a great question. And uh, I think it, with respect to our rapid response protocol, uh, it's probably too soon to tell. You know, we have, I, I hesitate to even say this because uh, these numbers can change very quickly, uh, but we have had a significant reduction both in shootings uh, and in homicides uh, this year. Uh, we're also seeing a much more rapid rate of solving homicides, which, which helps take shooters off the streets and helps send a, a message of deterrence, which is important. But I, the, the honest answer, Lucy, is it's, it's probably too soon to tell whether those initiatives that we've built over the last couple of years are really working. Uh, but we are, uh, we're determined to move the needle, not just mm-hmm. to fund programs. And so we're going to be watching it very, very carefully. I wanted to uh, bring uh, Aswad Thomas back into the conversation. Uh, he survived a Hartford shooting in 2009, part of his upbringing in Hartford, uh, now lives in Georgia. Aswad, as you hear Mayor Bronin explain some of the initiatives on the ground, I mean, what's your response? Yeah, I think um, the city has to do more. Um, More starts with investing in a different type of evidence-based programs. Um, You know, for example, there are models out there that exist, uh, like the National uh, Network of Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Program is a model um, for uh, victims like myself who uh, survive a shooting um, before I left the hospital that um, I would have already been connected to a a community-based organization who's going to um, you know, follow up with me uh, at home in the community and help me get access to trauma recovery services. You know, those services that helps me deal with the PTSD, that helps me deal with the paranoia, the depression. And so um, victims of violence um, need long-term care. Um, and also victims of violence need um, support services that not only help them as individuals, but also help the entire family. And so when I see a city like Hartford, a city that I am from, uh, lived there, uh, became a, a victim of violence there, I still have family members there. Um, there are, are huge opportunities 
um, you know, to look at models um, that are working, uh, models that really uh, help victims of violence deal with the, the aftermath of uh, being a survivor of gun violence or helping those family members who've lost loved ones uh, to gun violence. And so, you know, as an organization uh, that I work for, which is Crime Survivor Safety and Justice, we um, have been a champion, a model called a Trauma Recovery Center. A Trauma Recovery Trauma Recovery Center is a model that's a community-based um, in partnership with local hospitals, in partnership with, you know, it could be a behavioral uh, health facility um, that is somewhere in the community that victims of violence can go to to get access to uh, clinical case management, uh, a, a medical uh, management plan, uh, outreach worker, um, you know, having a single point of contact to connect that survivor to other resources is, is another model uh, that's out there that's evidence-based that shows that it worked. Mm. Um, and, and also, I, I think the city of Hartford um, need to start looking into, um, you know, where are opportunities for more funding to provide direct services? Uh, for example, in Connecticut, uh, the Office of Victim Services, um, you know, is the, the entity that, you know, primarily work with uh organizations serving crime victims and crime victims directly. Uh, the state has received over the past five years $100 million in, in Victims of Crime Act funding. Um, but unfortunately, uh, those organizations that, that the mayor mentioned aren't receiving those investments um, from that $100 million. So when you have organizations like Mothers United Against Violence, uh, which are doing great work in the community, uh, have been doing great work for decades, where it's the only organization that reached out to me um, after I became a victim of violence, uh, they need support um, and also resources to help them, you know, uh, connect with more mothers who need that, that important grief counseling and support as well. That's what Thomas, uh, again, now is Managing Director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. That's what, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I also want to thank Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin uh, for calling in to let us know about some initiatives uh, the city is working on. And Jeff Teitler is here with us, director of The Sweetest Land, uh, the peg to our conversation. This is a documentary that premiered at the New Haven uh, Documentary Film Festival. We'll have information on our website about this film. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Hartford Mayor uh, Luke Bronin. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.